the night before the cooking classes, when I get the email from Maz's CEO, you know, that the deal has collapsed. You know, I was tossing and turning all night. It was, it was one of those like, well, I think what this means is probably, you know, my shares in that company are not going to be worth anything in the future. Welcome to Humans of SaaS. I'm your host, Ben Wynn, and on this show, I talk to entrepreneurs, innovators, and leaders from the tech industry who each have a unique and compelling story to share. Rand Fishkin is CEO and co-founder at SparkToro, a market research and audience research platform that has the simple goal of helping people do better marketing. Rand was formerly co-founder and CEO of Moz, and he is the author of Lost and Founder, a painfully honest field guide to the startup world. He also consistently puts out fantastic content on Twitter and LinkedIn, so if you're not already following him, go to his profiles right now and follow. I promise you'll be thrilled that you did. Rand, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, Ben, my pleasure. So the impetus for us reaching out was one of your posts, one of your many amazing posts, that was entitled... Uh, something like how one email changed our entire company's trajectory. Obviously, coming from a customer experience, customer success sort of context, that really sparked interest. And then I read through the whole post and everything you put out there, and it was really a cool story. If we can start there, can you share with the audience, what was the problem that, that prompted that email before we get into the nuts and bolts of what exactly it was and how it changed everything? So SparkToro is is not very old. We launched our public version in May of 2020. We had reached sort of profitability in September, break-even profitability in September. So, nice. you know, doing doing well, had a pretty good fall into early winter, and then things things slowed down. Like our rate of new customer signups was kind of a trickle, and our conversion rate was pretty low. And we we had this sense that uh, there was a lot more promise to SparkToro than what we were getting from a customer response perspective. And one of the things that I have learned over the years is, is sometimes you just got to ask people. If you have lots and lots of customer conversations right, with people who are uh, your existing customers and your potential customers and people who are signed up to your email list but haven't become mm -hmm. customers, you can often learn a tremendous amount. And so we, we had this kind of moment of reckoning. Yeah, so we we designed this email that would go out to, I think about 30,000 people, primarily marketers and market researchers who had signed up for SparkToro's free version, right? So there's a forever free account that you can just sign up and run a bunch of free searches. And that forever free account is how we had these this large database of emails, whole bunch of people on it. And so we, we thought, well, you know what we can do? We can reach out to them personally from my personal email. I'll be the reply to address. I'll get all these responses, you know, and then we'll sort of process them. But we'll, we'll kind of ask people what is the value that they're hoping to get from SparkToro and what are they missing and, and what are our holes? And we'll look for ways that people describe the product and then try and learn from that experience. Oh, just to be clear, prior to launch in May 2020, we probably had about almost half those folks had signed up for the, hey, get notified when we launch. So we had we had, had about a year and a half of whatever you want to call it, right? Sort of marketing energy um, mm -hmm. behind SparkToro's, you know, launch process, right? Building the mystique. I don't think it's smart at all 
no matter what kind of product builder you are to build something secretly and silently and then like, boom, hey, look, we're out. Why is right. no one paying attention? That's, that's not the way you want to go, right? You want to get people excited first. And if they're not getting excited and not signing up, that probably means that either your product isn't a great idea or people don't mm -hmm. realize they have that pain point or you're not talking about it and positioning it correctly. And so you can alter those things in the ramp up process, right? In the build and development process. And that's definitely something we did with SparkToro. Yes, there's a lot to dig into there because I, I think... I 100% agree with the, the it, it being a the wrong mentality to think, okay, I'm going to build this amazing product and the people will come. I think that's been widely proven to not be the case in terms of successful companies. But my anxiety around doing what you did and building, you know, a year and a half, especially of getting people amped up is, you know, I'm very much an under promise over deliver kind of guy. And so uh, my fear is always, okay, if I get people really excited about this, I'm building up their expectations more and more, and then it better be good because if it's not like now, I've, you know, yeah, uh, you know, all these people are going to be, you know, disappointed in what I put out there. I, I am 100% with you. I think that is exactly the right attitude to have. And I only have one solution to that problem. And that is you have to do a long, quiet, private beta, mm, right? So essentially yep. for almost a year of that year and a half, we had people quietly, privately, you know, invited to try a version of the product. And the first version was lousy, right? Until the cohort of beta testers, right? The last cohort we invited, which I think was like a few months before that launch, when that cohort started to try it out and be like, oh, this is amazing. This is exciting. We're going to build this into our, whatever, in-house marketing process, our agency's process, or like, you know, this is kind of life-changing for us. Now we have something that people are excited enough about, the private beta testers are excited enough about that we can launch it publicly and feel relatively confident that we'll get some traction. Your philosophy is exactly right. Under-promise and over-deliver, but don't build quietly, you know, in secret. You can have the best of both worlds by combining these tactics. That's awesome. I, I want to get back to, you know, you started to see a decline in, in sort of new signups. You sent out this email and there were, I think, one like two questions in there. It was, uh, do you remember what the, what the two questions were? Yeah. So the two questions were, how much value do you get from your free SparkToro account and what are you using it for? And then number two, what, if anything, holds you back from using SparkToro more, upgrading your mm -hmm. account and or trying more searches? So we're, we're essentially asking people who we know have tried at least three searches in the last 90 days. Yeah, so we, we had a high response rate after the first three weeks. It was very close to a thousand responses. It's a lot of responses. Was the effect <laughs> on your engagement immediate, like in terms of, because I know it resulted in increased usage and things you weren't even expecting. You were just looking for feedback. Was that sort yeah. of immediate? You were like, what the hell is going on when you started looking at your dashboard? Yeah, so I mean, we could see very directly from our analytics that Basically, a couple of things happen. Every time we email people about SparkToro, right? People who are who have used the free version, it's sort of this like reminder of, oh yeah, SparkToro exists. And and some subset of those people, this is my theory, some subset of the people who are reminded about SparkToro remember what it does, mm -hmm. or they like go give it another try, and then they realize that it is solving a problem they already have. And they go to SparkToro and they're like, 
this is pretty good. I'm going to sign up. <laughs> right. you know, there's, so so there's definitely a lot of that. And then the second part was all these responses basically telling us things like, here's what I'm using it for. Here's what I wish it did more of. Here's what, here's my, my challenges and issues with it. And we mm -hmm. essentially, you know, I took those nearly thousand responses and categorized them, came back from that experience with a whole list of points of friction that Casey and I could go try and solve. That is a process where you, you have to use your best judgment, right? You're going to get a whole bunch of responses that maybe say something like it's too expensive. And this right. is, we're talking about a $50 a month product, right? This is not replacing something that is providing me with more than $50 worth of revenue, which a B2B software product, it better be. Most of the folks I talk to SparkToro is hopefully at least, you know, a lot of the, the agencies, for example, they're, they're most direct one or B2B software companies, right? They're basically like, mm -hmm. oh yeah, I went, I used SparkToro. I planned out some marketing tactics from it. I planned out some content stuff. I optimized some Facebook ad campaign, I, whatever they did with it. Mm -hmm. They're like, and I made many multiples of $50 or $150 a month or whatever it is, right? And, yeah. and if that's not true, the, the problem is not your product is too expensive. It's you didn't explain to me or I haven't been able to figure out how to take what SparkToro does and turn it into a lot more revenue. You know, th this is part of the challenge of like having these conversations and interpreting the data properly. Had I been more naive at, at software as a service building, I probably would have been like, Casey, let's offer a $30 a month version. Right, something exactly. Like that. eh, that's probably not the right thing to do, right? SparkToro is a, it's not a super expensive product to run, but it costs money. And a lot of people responded and said, you don't offer SparkToro in German or Spanish. I got a lot of responses from a whole bunch of different you know, countries and languages, but those were the top two. So what are we yeah. doing? Well, we're going to try and first, you know, the first two non-English languages that we'll support are German and Spanish. There you go. Sounds great. <laughs> Intimidating to get all of that feedback. And you're a two, now three-person team. And so actioning that feedback and prioritizing it on top of all your ongoing maintenance stuff that you need to do to keep building the company. And what I, I challenging, I imagine. So in terms of how you, because I wanted to ask about closing that loop, right? Like, did you, you know, it's common for companies to ask for, for customer feedback. But one of the biggest things, mistakes that companies make is they then sort of never get back to the customer. They don't sort of reinforce that loop by saying, hey, like, thank you for your feedback. Like, here's our thoughts on what you just said. Obviously, you know, you're in a one-to-many scenario, so it's not like if you're, you're at enterprise or mid-market where you can directly email, hey, Fred, thank you for your response to our survey. But is that why you sort of did the blog to sort of make it public or make it known to all of your customers, here's what you said, here's what we're doing, and, and sort of close the loop that way? No, 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 no. The, the, the blog post was much more for other marketers and entrepreneurs. It's not for SparkToro's customers. I, I think some of SparkToro's customers probably saw it, but that's not primarily the, the reason that I wrote the post. The post was to help other people do similar sorts of marketing tactics. Instead, what I did is just responded personally, individually to every one of those emails. I answer every email that comes to me. So basically I blocked off like the next three weeks with very few other things other than just replying to emails. And that's what I did all day, every day and every night, wow. just replied to lots of emails. And I think it, you know, it works a little differently when it's the founder, 
when the CEO and founder of a company that you're using emails you directly and is like, Ben, I totally hear you. Casey and I chatted, we're going to try and put whatever German on our roadmap for this coming winter. And we'll mm -hmm. send you an email when, when we launch the German version. That's a big difference from thank you for filling out our customer survey, right? Yeah, exactly. It's a very, very effective way to, to scale personal relationships. I, you know, I don't love a lot of traditional tech startup advice, but I think one of the pieces that I do like, and I very much agree with is that in the early stages of a company, you should do things that you cannot possibly scale if you get larger. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs are scared of this, right? They're scared of a thousand emails over three weeks. And like, right. how am I going to respond to all of those? And a bunch of those are going to be people who tell me things that I, I can't immediately act on. And I, I try to have both that, remove some of that fear <laughs> of being overwhelmed yeah. and also have the humility to say, just because I think I know doesn't mean I know. I, I can't put my finger on exactly how, because there's lots of, to your point, there's lots of emails that are clearly masquerading as personal emails that are not, and they sound spammy and sketchy. There is absolutely a way to write and structure and format emails that is a combination of, this is not masquerading as anything other than what it is, which is an email mm -hmm. that goes out to many people from one person. Yep. And also, it is personal, and if you hit reply, you will get a personal reply from the person who sent it to you. I don't know how to explain how to craft those. I rarely see them from other organizations. I think that's what makes it so effective. Today's show is brought to you by Catalyst Software, the fastest growing customer success platform on the market. Catalyst gives you unmatched customizability, a seamless bi-directional Salesforce integration that takes less than five minutes to set up, and a world-class customer success team that'll be by your side every step of the way. Let's be honest, whatever you're currently using might be good enough, but is good enough really what you're aiming for? Take your CS team to the next level by switching to Catalyst today. To learn more, visit catalyst.io. And if you aren't looking for a CS platform right now, you should subscribe to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn anyways. I make daily memes, we host all sorts of events, and we love to give away our swag, which has been called the comfiest swag in the industry. Again, check out catalyst.io to learn more. I was really impressed with how customer-centric Rand's approach to this problem was. He could have emailed everyone like most marketers would saying, you know, here's all the benefits of our platform, here's all the things that you can and should be doing. But instead he asked for feedback, he asked his customers about the value they felt they were getting, about their experience, about what they could be doing better. And he didn't just stop there, he internalized and categorized all that feedback, shared it internally and then took three weeks to email 1000 people to personally thank them for their feedback and let them know what actions they were taking based on the feedback they provided. If you can give me a better way for a CEO to build personal relationships with a thousand customers, I would love to hear it. It takes that sort of time and dedication, but I guarantee that that will pay off for them in the short term and in the long term. I was then really curious to ask Rand more about Moz and a cryptic tweet that he'd sent a few weeks ago saying that he'd lost $14 million in one day. I knew that Moz had been successfully acquired, but I didn't know everything that had gone on behind the scenes. This was a really interesting situation that I was looking forward to learning more about.
let's talk about how you lost $14 million. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, sure. Ben, for, for listeners who don't know, I started a company in 2001, co-founded a company with, with my mom, Jillian, initially called SEO Moz and later called Moz. And over you know many years, it became a sort of mildly successful consulting business and then switched into software. I became the CEO. We raised several rounds of funding, you know, built that to a maybe around a $40 million run rate uh, before I stepped down as CEO. I was at the company for a few more years and then left in 2018, start of 2018, and started SparkToro the next day. You know, for the for the next maybe two and a half years, I was still on the board of directors. And then I I left the board of directors last year. And so you know, during that time period where I was still on Moz's board, but after I had left the company and, and several years after I had stepped down as CEO, you know, the, the growth had kind of plateaued. The company was struggling. I've, I've written about this, um, you know, in Lost and Founder a little bit. And I was very, very unhappy with the company's choices and leadership's decisions and the board's decisions and this kind of stuff. And I, you know, I'm not a person who hides that particularly well. But in, what was that? I guess that was the end of 2019, Moz got an offer to sell the company. I think it actually had a couple offers that it had sort of been you know, uh, quietly talking to folks. And one of the offers was the one they liked the most. So they signed a term sheet for it and were in due diligence. And the, the day before escrow, uh, the buyer pulled out of the deal. You know, and this sort of tanked the whole process because you can't really go yeah. back to the other buyers and be like, hey, <laughs> remember how we said no like a month ago and what was somebody Jokes else? We're back. Yeah. <laughs> Finger guns um, always work. Yeah, that doesn't that does not work. I, I think one of the very frustrating things is that it has the appearance of, oh, they must have found something wrong in due diligence. Right. Which they did not. The the stated reason for uh, pulling out of the deal was that they felt uncertain about the um, projections for the next three quarters. Those projections have been in there since January. Like, you know, for a year, if you were uncertain about those projections, why would you send us a term sheet and sign the deal? It's not like they changed. You know, it's yeah. not like Moz didn't, whatever, hit its numbers in November or October or whatever the, the month was. Regardless that, you know, I, you sort of you go to sleep one night and, you know, the whatever the investment bankers have sent you like, a, OK, here's the breakdown of how much each person's getting. Right. And since you right. own, you know, whatever it was, 18, 19 percent of the company, um, you know, you'll you'll be getting in this particular deal. It was like 14 million dollars, right. you know. I was like, oh, that's that's real strange because, you know, I'm someone who my wife and I are doing fine. Right. I had a nice salary at Moz, SparkToro. We, we raised some money and, you know, managed to get whatever health insurance and, you know, a decent salary is almost half of my Moz salary. So, you know, I was making much less than I had been before. But, I, you know, we were doing fine. Yeah. We were happy. We were mm -hmm. so 14 million dollars is like crazy life changing amount. Yeah. Um, what was funny about it, Ben, is we were in uh, we were in Italy. I'd been invited to speak at a conference in in Milan, and you know they picked up our travel and hotel, which was awesome. And then we'd taken a few days of vacation. Geraldine's family; she has a bunch of cousins and aunts and uncles in Milan, and so we were 
touring around. We, we met up with a friend and we were, um, we were in Bologna, actually. We'd been invited by, uh, I don't know if you know Peldi from Balsamic. I don't. Oh, he's awesome. You should have him on the podcast sometime. One of, in my opinion, one of the best indie founders uh, around and has a fascinating approach to like customer service and, and support and Excellent. onboarding people. Um, and Balsamic is a great product, which which helps too. Yes. But um, so he had invited us to to Bologna, and um, when we got there, he was like, "I got you a cooking class." And the night the night before the cooking class is when I get the email from oh, Maz's no. CEO, you know, that the deal is collapsed, and you know the escrow is supposed to hit on whatever Monday. I think this was a Friday, wow. and I did not sleep. You know, I was tossing and turning all night. It was it was one of those like, well. I think what this means is probably, you know, my shares in that company are not going to be worth anything in the future. That was kind of my takeaway. Like, you know, if this deal fell apart now with everything going so swimmingly well, I just don't see how, you know, the company would have to really turn it around and I just don't see that. And the board doesn't seem to be willing to make changes and life altering, mind altering, like, okay, I have to change the way I think about kind of the 20 years that I put into that company and right. think of it as a learning experience and a networking experience and like a, you know, a building experience, but not a financially extraordinary experience. And that must've been after like a few days of reflection though. I can't remember, or was that like off the bat? There must've been at least one initial like screaming into a pillow. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But Geraldine, Geraldine was awesome, right? So, you know, I grab, I don't have my phone, but, you know, I, I'm like grabbing my phone, I read her the email, and she mm -hmm. just looks at me and goes, ha, and then falls asleep. <laughs> like a sociopath. <laughs> oh, man. That's a I good mean, reaction. You know, Geraldine just, uh, money is not her motivation, right? She yeah. cares a tremendous amount about me, and so I think she was disappointed for me that this didn't happen. She shops at the Goodwill and like, yeah. she just doesn't, yeah. she doesn't need a lot of money, right? She, that's not what she cares about, which is awesome. To totally awesome. Love that. Definitely. And then the next day, you know, we get up, we're with our friend, Emily in Bologna. We go to this cooking class that Peldi bought for us, which is so kind. I, I don't know how much it costs, but probably a few hundred dollars a head. Sure. And we're making fresh pasta and walking around Bologna and going to the markets and stuff. And I'm like, oh, you know what? $14 million doesn't make this any better. You know, what more can you ask for out of life? Re like, really? You, you need eight figures of wealth to be happy? No, this, you are with your, you know, partner in Italy and having this incredible experience and things are going well at your new startup and it's going to be fine. It's going to be great. I don't know. So I've, I've been meaning to write about this experience because I, you know, I don't know how exactly to talk cogently and cohesively about the like mental and emotional gymnastics of that process. And then, mm -hmm. and then, you know, what's wild is I guess seven or eight weeks ago now, I get a phone call from one of Moz's investors. I, like I said, I'm no longer on the board, but I got a phone call and it's basically like, Hey, in 10 days, we're selling the company. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, right. Where you are, I've heard yeah. this one before. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Give, give me a call back when it happens. Maybe three weeks after that, I check my email and it's like, Oh, BECU, which is, which is the credit union that we bank with. 
you have received a deposit of larger than $500. It was much, much, much larger than $500 spent. <laughs> it was not nearly as much as the, as the 14 million, but it was still a life-changing amount of money. And That's incredible. yeah, and it was one of those like, oh, holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to Italy, pack your bags. Like I kind of didn't believe it was going to happen because you know Moz announced yeah. the deal publicly, but there was still no financial transaction. Like you know, no money had come through. Yeah. And so I was like, uh, so probably something's going to happen, but maybe not. But who knows? And what's it going to be? And yeah, that um, is an up and a down and an up again and just all over the place kind I know. of experience. Yeah. Take a moment and imagine that you are about to be paid $14 million for years and years and years of hard work. You've been guaranteed it, it's in writing, it's on the way, you believe that your $14 million check is just three, four days away from hitting your bank account, you know what you're gonna buy, you know where you're gonna go, you know who you're gonna give money to, you have all of these plans, and then all of a sudden, you get an email that just says, not happening. Like, how do you even begin to comprehend that. How did how did Rand not break everything that was in his hotel room? Like, I'm sure it was a little more, you know, intense than the way he related in the podcast, but I don't think it was much more. And after chatting with him for a while, he's he's a pretty chill dude. And it just blows my mind how he was able to make peace with it so quickly and wander the streets of Italy, eat some pasta and then just be like, "You know what? I don't need it." Like, I'm sorry, that would take me three weeks of constant therapy in order to get to that point. But amazing to hear that story from someone like Rand who went through such an incredible up and down and up and down with that company only to have it all pulled away at the last second. Fortunately, there is a happy ending, but man, what a story. And man, what, that is something to go through. We obviously did, you know, extraordinary out of, out of the deal. But there were lots of, you know, lots of people who had worked at the company over the years who were who were not, you know, the whole stock option conceit is that essentially it's a it's a a not great mechanism for employees, but really good for investors over the life of a company. Of course, like you can be can you can be candid. I want to know. Like, I'm give us the tea. <laughs> All right. So um, let's say, for example, that. You know, I join Catalyst tomorrow, and Catalyst is like, "Hey, Rand, here's you know a hundred thousand options at a strike price of two dollars a share, and you vest into them over four years." It's a little bit complicated, but then it gets very complicated with something like taxes. So let's say I'm there for four years, and I get all my stock options granted, and then I leave the company. Right? I leave Catalyst. Mm -hmm. I've got my hundred thousand. Uh, shares at the strike price of $2 a share. And I'm like, oh, when I'm leaving, I only have like 90 days to execute my shares or not, right? I have to choose whether mm -hmm. I want to execute them. If I execute them, that, that means I have to pay the strike price on them. Yep. Do I have $200,000 sitting around? Maybe I do. Do I believe that if I pay that $200,000, I am... 100% certain that in the future, Catalyst will sell for some amount that is more than the $2 a share. Yep. I better feel very confident, otherwise I will not do it. And even worse, what if Catalyst's last valuation was $10 a share? Now I have to pay taxes on the gains. On the difference. 
Yeah. I was just reading about all that and I was like, this is because I passed my cliff a couple months ago and I'm like, huh, AMT, huh. that sucks. And yeah. short term capital gains, long term capital gains. And I still don't understand. The more I read, the less I understand. I like start to understand things. And the second I think I'm getting it, I'm like, uh huh. Okay. And I know yeah. nothing. Here's the shitty part, right? So that can go wrong in a whole bunch of ways, right? One way is I don't have the $200,000. So I just can't sure. execute my options. So I walk away from them. And what happens to those options? Back you into the back pool, the yeah. distributed to stockholders, right? But mostly investors, right? Investors and, and usually founders. So right. great for investors and founders, because essentially all that huge incentive that they gave me to come on board and stay with the company was of zero value to me. And basically they got it all back, right? So it's right. like, ah, oh, yeah, he didn't execute, woo. <laughs> right. Like it's not a great incentive model, right? The, you know, you, you were sort of founders and, and investors are sort of cheering for folks to like leave before the exit, especially the big option holders and not execute their shares. But let's say I'm like, nope, I'm confident and I save $200,000, I'm gonna put the money in. And then three, four years later, the company sells for less than $2 a share. I don't even get my money back and I've just paid a ton of taxes and that is a nightmare scenario. And that is the most common scenario that happens to employee option executors. Interesting. Chances are very high because the venture model, you know, you know how the venture model works, right? You invest mm -hmm. in a portfolio of 500 companies. Mm -hmm. 480 of them approximately are going to die trying to become unicorns. Yeah. Another 10 or 12 will make some significant money, right? Maybe they'll mm -hmm. make somewhere between 50 and $100 million a pop or whatever, sell, sell for those amounts. And then there'll be three, four, five that are like the unicorns, they make the whole fund. Mm -hmm. So essentially, as an employee, do you want to execute those shares? It's, it's just an incredibly high risk kind of Definitely. thing to do. Yeah, and it's one of those things where if you don't, and then, you know, there's that fear of missing out, right, that motivates people, there's all the success yep. stories. You know, my brother's at Slack, and you know, he went through that whole, he, he was there for a few years, so he went through the whole acquisition. And like, you know, so, you know, we see it. And obviously, those are the narratives that pervade the industry, you don't hear about all the failures, and all the people who lost their money, because who wants to talk about that? No. So it, it's one of those things. But it's, it's such an important thing, I think, to focus on I mean, stock options are nice, but make sure you have a salary that you're comfortable with that will let you, you know, cover your your cost of living and and do what you need to do, and just make sure you're enjoying your your day to day. Like the short term stuff is what you can control. Like I'm not one of those people that can sacrifice the short term for the long term when it comes to most yeah, things. I, I am going to strongly disagree with you here. Okay, I don't think stock options are fine. I think they are bullshit. I think they are a way that the wealthy capital class further screws over labor. Even if it's not, like let's say you're getting paid, let's say your salary is market rate or, or you know, above its competitive salary, even in that instance, you still feel like it's it's just a, a bullshit thing. It is a bullshit thing. That's exactly, that's exactly what I believe. I don't think companies should do it anymore. I think founders and investors should recognize that it is a bullshit thing and should should stop doing it. And they're not going to, right? They're not going to listen to me. They they like their model. They're very happy when yeah. folks leave and don't execute their shares. They're they're fine with, you know, employees and the team that built the company missing out on the returns for essentially wealthy people to get wealthier. 
Well, this falls into that category of things that are probably too, because of the complexity, you know, that's, that's why it's, people don't push back against it a lot, right? Because if yeah. you have people don't understand version. it, right? So like, look, if you really want to go work at a company that offers stock options, this is what I would tell you to do. Pretend the stock options are worthless, absolutely worthless, right? They're, they're essentially like, oh, here is a lottery ticket and I can do math, right? <laughs> okay. Like, here's a lottery sure. ticket, I can do math. And also, you had better pay me in such a way that is commensurate with what I would get at a public company whose stock was publicly traded that was mm -hmm. liquid and valuable to me the minute it's there. Because right. otherwise, it is, hey, these stock options could make you a millionaire someday, 96 times out of 100 anyway. They are designed yep. to make you nothing and the founders and investors more. The C-suites kind of incentive is to make them appear good to you. And even if even if the C-suite is filled with high quality, very ethical people, the incentives are the problem. Mm. The structure is the problem. And so, you know, with Moz in this transaction, a small number of employees did okay. A lot of employees did not do okay. And a lot of people, you know, sort of barely got rewarded from a few hundred to a few thousand dollars, very few people making more than $10,000, mm -hmm. sacrificed hundreds of thousands of dollars of income over five to 10 to 15 years because of the promise of the stock options value, right? And that's almost every startup that that's the case. And so Geraldine and I logged into Carta, right? Which has the mm -hmm. you know breakdown of all the stock options after, you know, after we got this, this big deposit and we were basically like okay let's try and find people who are screwed and then uh we made a list i think of about i think it ended up being 39 folks that we could find who'd sort of you know basically had like not just they only made a little bit of money but but they they lost money or they something they really missed out on their options expired for example mm -hmm. and, and they were still at the company or they a rough go of things. There's a whole variety of them. And we just wrote a whole bunch of personal checks between six and $30,000, six and six and $60,000, I guess. That's incredible. Yeah. We, we just sort of, we were like, well, this is why it's bullshit. This wow. is why I'm pissed because what I, I don't, what I'm worried about is I'm worried, Ben, that people will hear this story and mm -hmm. they will think, oh, Rand and Geraldine, they're so great. And that is not the takeaway. The takeaway is Oh, that is that is bullshit. Because well, you, felt you had to do that. No, no, because nine hundred and ninety nine out of a thousand founders will not do that. You cannot right. rely on individual generosity to fix a structural problem. One hundred percent. Right. the The takeaway should be that model is broken. That model works really well for investors and founder. Some founders, at least founders who stay with companies and that kind of stuff, right? And um, who maintain large amounts of their their shares, but it is broken for employees and it should be modified. We employees should, despite the complexities, should educate ourselves about how this works, right? The the rough structure that we've talked about in the last 10 minutes is really all you need to know. You, you don't need to know a ton more mm -hmm. than that, right? That the incentives and the structure is is weighted in a certain way that there's tax issues around it and you can get individual guidance around your individual situation absolutely mm -hmm. but fundamentally stock options is a a rigged game
Well, I'm glad we got to talk about that and help, you know, spread the word. I'm glad, you know, and, and I know <laughs> and, you don't want now, people... the... <laughs> now my founder is going to come in and be like, Ben, what the hell are you talking about on this podcast? Uh, yeah, Ben, uh, maybe wrap up this podcast thing. <laughs> yeah, or, exactly. uh, just, just don't talk to these rabble rousers. These... <laughs> Honestly, no, I, I mean, I'm, I, I'll, I'll confess I haven't read Lost and Founder yet, but I'm going to. I'm excited to because I feel like it's this kind of stuff and more. And, it's this kind of stuff, yeah. And that's what we need to be talking about more. I mean, when we talk about, I talk a lot with people about mental health in, in startups and in tech, talk a lot about, you know, authenticity at work and, you know, being good people like this, this is the kind of stuff that builds great companies, makes people happy every day, wanting to go to work and fixes a lot of the problems companies are having around employee retention and around, you know, building great teams and hiring. And, you know, we have to attack some of the, uh, all of the structural and systematic problems, like the one you just outlined, um, that are sort of keeping things where they are. So I'm really glad that we got to talk about that. And I appreciate you being so open and candid about it. Yeah, man, it's uh, it's my pleasure. I, you know, I, I don't want to dissuade someone from joining a company that they are really excited about. I, I don't want to suggest that everyone who's in a startup and a stock option situation now is is going to absolutely be screwed. <laughs> but I, I think it's it's very important that we understand how these incentives and systems are built because if you don't, you will one day find yourself, your coworkers, your team. There, there are plenty of founders who don't quite get this. I didn't mm -hmm. understand it, right? I was like, yeah, stock options. That's how we all get on the same page. Like, why do we do stock options? And the investors are like, oh, because it makes sure that when you win, your team wins too, right? right. That they get in here. And why is it a complex structure the way it is? So that venture capitalists can get long-term capital gains on their investment. That's why it's structured that way. And so that a bunch of people will leave the company and the stock options will right. go back. If you did something instead like phantom equity, right? Where everybody gets some sort of percent ownership and you just vest yep. into that. Guess what? Different story. Maybe you pay ordinary income taxes on it, but you don't have all these like mixed up- Convoluted. Screwy incentives. Yeah, exactly. Bonuses. What if you paid bonuses? <laughs> oh, well, you, you probably will pay ordinary income tax, but you will not get screwed in 99 out of 100 scenarios. Right. There are other and better ways to do it. And I think the startup world needs to have a reckoning with themselves. And I think that the only way that's going to happen is if enough employees and potential employees educate themselves and come to that negotiating table and say, this is not going to work. And then, only then will founders and investors rethink their methodologies. Perfect note to end on. I, I never thought in a million years I would quote Jurassic World on the podcast, but <laughs> there's a line in it where um, she says, I think it's the mom, she says a promise fulfilled today is better than an unfulfilled promise tomorrow, or it's something like that. It's like the thing about, you know, if you could have, they'll always try to pitch you on, well, you could have $1,000 today or $10,000 tomorrow, um, always take the thousand dollars today, or I think of the Simpsons when it's you know you can when they're when he's bribing the nuclear inspectors you can have you know this basket of money or whatever's in this mysterious box. Oh, the box! We want the, the box. mystery box. <laughs> Never take the mystery box. Excellent, excellent analogy. Love it. Awesome. Well, Rand, thank you so so much for joining me today. This was super fun chatting with you. Yeah, my pleasure, Ben. Take care. It was so refreshing speaking to Rand about some of the problems that he sees in the startup space right now. I think we all have a tendency to be pretty optimistic and excited, and that's a great thing and it's needed to be entrepreneurial. 
but sometimes it can be to a fault. If we hear that one in a hundred companies was gonna be a unicorn, we're pretty sure that we're that one in a hundred companies. Like that's how the lottery works and why it's been doing so well for so long. So it's important to be really informed, know all of the sort of vernacular around stock options and equity and shares and exercising those shares, know what your situations could be depending on how the company turns out and make sure that you're being compensated fairly and compensated in a way where you're not sacrificing your short-term worth or your worth for potential long-term gains. Thanks so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Make sure to subscribe. And if you want to reach out to us, our email is community at getcatalyst.io.